Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Today, I'm delighted to invite Samah Abdullah. Samah is an internationally recognized expert in the growing field of well-being. He has worked with a wide range of actors from small community groups to businesses to governments to international bodies like the EU and the OECD to embed well-being measurement and science into policy and practice. Samah studied experimental psychology at the University of Cambridge and democracy and democratization at University College London. Between 2006 and 2016, Samah worked at the Center for Wellbeing at the New Economics Foundation, an independent London think tank whose mission is to transform the economy so that it works for people and the planet. During his time there, he led work on new measures of societal progress, such as the Happy Planet Index, and measuring well-being at the local level, such as the Santa Monica Wellbeing Index. It is thanks to the work of organizations like the New Economics Foundation that well-being is now measured by official statistics agencies in most wealthy countries, and that countries such as New Zealand, Italy, and the UK have begun integrating well-being into policy. Samah played a key role in the development of the What Works Center for Well-Being, a UK government-funded initiative to marshal and disseminate well-being evidence that is useful for policy and practice, and still cooperates with them closely today. Samah is a member of the Eurostat Expert Group on Quality of Life, and in 2016, won the award for emerging leader in the field of community indicators. In the same year, Samah swapped life in the big city to move to a small town in eastern Germany. He lives there with his wife and seven-year-old daughter and is currently focusing on two challenges, completing a PhD in communication science and learning German. Samah is still involved in the field of well-being, contributing to the Center for Thriving Places work on local-level indicators of well-being, and developing a better understanding of what community well-being means. Samal's work is super interesting and, and has many insights and implications for our society. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Samal, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I'm super excited to have you. Looking forward to chatting. And just to begin, I would love to have you reflect a little bit and say something about how you see the chasm or chasms in our society as they relate to your interest areas around well-being. Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, when I think about sort of this question of, you know, how do we cross the chasm and I think about well-being, I guess you can see this, this question in two ways. And it depends on what your objective is, like what's, what's on the other side of the chasm. So. Um, if it's about um, increasing well-being, so is it, if, if it's about sort of looking at society and saying, well, we live in a society where there's high rates of mental health problems, um, suicide rates, and this sense that sort of that life isn't getting better, that somehow we're kind of we're, we've kind of flatlined um, in terms of well-being over over the decades, um, and there's a sort of sense that sort of you know well, what are we what are we doing wrong? Um, then, well, the chasm there is one between a situation where we've we've got quite a bit of research, I guess, now, which shows what is important to people's well-being. Um, but we, yeah, we're not doing, we're not doing the thing. So, so, I mean, I won't go into details now, but, you know, there's kind of, there's a whole list of sort of things that we know predict people's well-being. And so they, they you know, there's the basic things like unemployment, um, you know, sort of good sense of community, inequality, um, but it's also about our lifestyles, right? So you could think about the chasm and saying, well, how do we get, you know, from this sort of research base? And some of it is actually not just research, just sort of, um, what you might call sort of basic wisdom about, you know, we know how, we, you know, there's, there's all sorts of wise, um, wise, you know, wise messages which people have known throughout society and we don't, we don't necessarily follow them, no? So, so how do we get to that other side? I would say that, like, the chasm there is quite, um, well, there's, there's a lot of chasms there and I think it's kind of, a, it is a sort of a big, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions there. I would say one of the biggest ones is political because a lot of the, challenges we face are in terms of um, economic redistribution. Um, so, you know, when, when you think about a lot of the problems in terms of people's people who have low well-being, it's often about sort of material circumstances. Um, but I, but to be honest, like when I came into working in well-being, I was thinking about a different kind of chasm. I was thinking about the chasm between, um, between when we think about sort of the challenge of dealing with climate change and environmental destruction, environmental problems. And there, it's quite a different chasm. There we've got a situation, well, in some ways there's a lot of similarities. There we've got, you know, we know, um, you know, we know what we need to do. We've got all the sort of the solution. We've got lots of ideas of how we can um, reduce the impacts we have. And again, we don't do it. And in that sense, I think that well-being, um, rather than being, rather than being the, the chasm or being the other side of the chasm, whatever it is, I, I would say it's, it's more like a, a way that can help us to cross the chasm. Because, 
I think one of the problems we face when we when we want to um, tackle climate change and sort of you know change our lifestyles so that we can live in a way which is more environmentally friendly is that we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know what this other life really looks like. And I think the well-being research and well-being science is a little kind of not the bridge. It's not going to sort of like just something you can just walk over to get to the other side. It's more like a postcard. It's more like something like that gives us a picture of what the other side looks like. And that's where I think it can be useful. Really interesting. I think there's a lot to explore there. I think many listeners have heard of well-being and probably think about it, but maybe not know how it's defined or even how they define it necessarily. So could you just provide a little background on what you mean by well-being? Yeah. So um, well-being is a, a very simple but perhaps circular uh, definition is, is a good life. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's having, a good, having a life that's, that's worth living. Um, but that is, yeah, I mean, there's still lots of different ways of, you can, of defining that. Well, what is a good life? I think there are two main ways that people have looked at this sort of understanding of what it means, what, what is well-being, what is a good life. One is an approach which focuses on um, what you might call objective measures. So uh, it's a, based on an idea of, well, okay, this is what people need to have a good life. They need to have good income. They need to have um, shelter. They need to have good health, education. And this has kind of been um, the dominant way of thinking about well-being for, for many, um, yeah, for the, for, the, for many decades, for the last sort of five or so decades. And if you think about the, um, the United Nations Human Development Index, for example, then that includes um, GDP, so it's a measure of economic uh, conditions, health, and education. Yeah. You know? The problem with this approach is that it's very sort of top-down. It's like someone has try to decide what they think is um, what are the requirements for a good life. And it doesn't sort of get to the point of, okay, well, do people who have high income, health, a good, good health and a high education, are those people necessarily actually happy with their life? Do they consider they have a good life? And do the people who don't have those things, do they necessarily think that they have a bad life? And that's why, um, you know, and you could expand, you could extend the list. So there are the, there's an approach called the capabilities approach, which kind of looks at a huge list of different things which it thinks are important to life. But it still, for me, is 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 kind of trying too hard to avoid the simplest way of trying to work out whether someone has a good life, which is just to ask them. And so this is the approach which has now become quite sort of popular. When I started working working on this in 2006, it was definitely on the fringes, but now. Um, you can see it like most most um, most developed countries now measure subjective well-being um, in official statistics, and it's become a much more sort of what's the word acceptable uh, way of thinking about well-being. And um, yeah, and basically the idea is that you can ask people whether they think they're having it, whether they, whether they're happy with their life, whether they're satisfied with their life. There's different ways of formulating it, and and you trust them. And you know, different people have different things which are important to them. Um, so they define their own criteria when you ask when you ask them that question. Um, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, they all understand. You can ask, you know, you can ask, uh, you can ask a child at school, are they happy? You can ask, um, you know, you can ask your colleague at work if they're happy with their life, and you can ask a you know ninety year old um, ninety year old farmer in, in in any country in the world if they're happy, and they'll understand that question. So there has been a little bit of pushback in recent years around this whole notion of happy. And the way in which it leads people to counterintuitively being unhappy, basically, because there's this sort of notion of what it is. And if you don't have it, you're not doing well. So is I guess one of the questions I have is just on words. We talk about, you know, well-being. We talk about flourishing. We talk about happy. Are those all relatively the same terms, do you think? And are those the ones that are being used interchangeably in these kinds of analyses? It depends on on what your purpose is, and sort of you know, sort of are, you, are we talking about um, are we talking are we doing the, are we looking at this from an academic perspective? Are you looking at this from from the perspective of someone who has a project and wants to know uh, whether the project is improving the lives of the people you're working with? Um, are we talking about it from a sort of a policy perspective? And yeah, of course, within the academic world, there um, you know we spend a lot of time arguing about. Um, you know, arguing about what's the best way to measure this, what's the best words to just to, to um, you know, what's the best words to talk to talk about what we're what we're measuring, and there are important differences to to, to recognise. So there is there is a distinction between um, what you might call what well what people do call um, hedonic well-being. So this is the idea of sort of like your sort of experience within your moment emotions within a moment. So basically, are you happy or sad at a particular moment in time? And, um, and obviously that's quite variable, right? So, you know, it can go up and down depending on, depending on, um, you know, whether you're 
child is screaming at you because they want something that you're not going to give them or and then it can change very quickly when you're when you're then having an you know having a nice time with them um playing playing a game of football or whatever that hedonic well-being is very sort of instantaneous instantaneous it sort of happens in the moment and some academics have said well you know the true way of understanding well-being is you kind of add up all those moments over time yeah and that's one way of looking at it the uh, then there's another way of talking about well-being, which is this more sort of evaluative well-being. So this is when you ask people how satisfied are you with their life, with with your life, and people tend to use words like satisfaction, evaluation, and some people say happy with your life, which is kind of different from are you happy at the moment, right? That kind of encourages people to reflect on their life in a more in a broader sense. So then you're not just asking them how you're feeling now; you are you ask them to sort of think about the the, the overall picture. And when you measure that over time, that quite stable it's I mean, it's not completely stable but it's more stable than than this sort of are you happy now people are able to kind of you know reflect okay maybe i'm feeling a bit miserable now but i'm happy with my, i'm satisfied with my life overall um and then there's the third approach which is you, you use the word flourishing and um that's um that's a word that's been um uh, that's been um supported a lot by martin seligman who's one of the sort of key guys in, in the world of well in the world of well-being and it's also called eudaimonic well-being, which kind of tries to um, sort of take on a little bit of um, Greek philosophy in there. And there's, again, there's quite a lot of different ways of understanding that. But basically, that's somewhere in between the objective and the subjective approach. It's basically saying, okay, well, no, we can actually, okay, we're not going to give you a, a shopping list of all the things that are important to a good life in terms of the physical things. So we're not going to say, we're not going to say, okay, you need to have a good education. You need to have a house. You need to have an income above this amount. But we are going to tell you what we think is important in terms of that, um, in terms of the sort of the more sort of experiential components, which are important to a good life. So um, some people will talk about saying things like, well, everyone needs to have um, good relationships, uh, a sense of autonomy, and a sense that they're able to make a positive impact on other people and on themselves. So their sense, a sense of competence. So that's one way of thinking about this sort of flourishing approach. Then Martin Seligman has a different approach. Which I can't, I'm not going to be able to list off the five things right now, but he's got a list of five things which he says, okay, these are, this is what you need for flourishing. I like this approach because it's a little bit, it is, and this is kind of in, when you go into sort of the policy world and people want to say, they just want to measure one thing and they just say, okay, we're just going to measure life satisfaction. Is that enough? I quite like saying, well, no, actually you do need, it is better to, to have this rounder picture but in the end of the day, actually, when you kind of look at when you look at the things, of course, they do kind of tend to correlate. So the things that we know that the things that are going to improve people's happiness, well, their, their life satisfaction or their happiness with their life, are also likely to improve their sense of flourishing. You know, there are differences. You know, it's kind of as, as an academic, I like to point out those differences, but, but it's more or less the same picture. Yeah. So let's move into those specifics a little bit. I'm curious if you could articulate what you think are the yeah, the most important indicators or the indicators that are the most useful in identifying well-being and, and whether people feel like their lives are satisfactory. Um, yeah, so yeah, so this sort of headline indicator, which has become dominant in Europe at least, and um, is this sort of measure of life satisfaction. So how satisfied are you on, uh, how you are satisfied are you with your life on a scale of zero to ten? And this has been sort of adopted. This has been uh, supported by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and um, it's measured in um, yeah all European countries and quite a lot of Latin American countries use it as well. In the US, actually, sort of to, to the US, I said most developed countries are measuring well-being in official statistics. Um, the exception is the US. At the national level, there's been a lot of interesting stuff at the local level and community level to measure to to measure well-being, but the national level there isn't a measure. And so, and there's kind of a little bit of a vacuum of sort of if it does, if, if the US does get, if it does, if the US does end up measuring well-being, what is it going to use? Then, when you sort of talk about sort of the more details, the more detailed measurements. So, yeah, I'm quite a fan of this. Um, it's called self-determination theory, which um, has been around for quite a long time in terms of sort of what are the basic need, what are the basic psychological needs that people have. So, um, having strong relationships. So you can ask questions about people's relationships and whether they feel sort of, you know, with, I mean. One way of asking is if people feel lonely or not. So, um, and that's kind of a quite a key issue in a lot of countries at the moment. The sense that people, as we become more atomized, um, more people live alone. I think I just saw something which said that in New York, uh, some astonishing percentage of households are just or, uh, one person households. I think it might be thirty percent of households or something like that in New York are single person households. So a lot of people living alone, these very atomized lives. Or, you know, the other extreme, you can think about elderly people in rural areas 
where their fa- uh, where their families have migrated to cities and and the and the old people end up being alone and again lonely. So that's kind of particularly in today's society thing that I think it's important to um, measure and pay attention to. And then the other thing, which so for example, the UK measures this, which I think is quite um, which kind of quite happy with that they they follow that advice is a sense of that what you do in your life is worthwhile. So the sense that you're contributing to society. And and for many people, that's related to their work. So um, you can see that work influ- has an impact on people's life satisfaction. But like the, this kind of the specifics of what people do in their jobs makes even a bigger difference on whether, on their sense of worthwhile, sense of purpose. And we did some work in the UK sort of looking at the particular nuances and the differences between, um, between those two measures. And it also picks up things like volunteering, right, and and social and your community activities, and that's again something which I think that is I think is important to highlight and to to build in today's society the sort of sense of kind of community and working together, and so that's an indicator which I definitely you know I think is important to capture when you're measuring um, when you're measuring well-being. So it's interesting that you you raise that issue of the fact that many people associate their work life with their overall well-being. I think a counter argument could be that we're so focused and fixated on work that we've lost sight of what we actually really need and care about. And so I guess the question is, is it possible that people are maybe answering the questions in a way that reflects that linkage to their job and to status that's sort of overshadowing what their real needs and wants are? Is that, is that possible? Or are the, are the data coming out on this misleading in some ways, do you think? So, so yeah. So there's there's a, there are differences um, in terms of like when you look at different job characteristics and whether they affect life satisfaction or this sense of purpose. And I think there are, if I recall, there are definitely some factors which affect life satisfaction more than sense of purpose. And they are things which I would relate to what you just said there about status, right? So your so income is more connected to life satisfaction and than than sense of purpose. So. I think you're right. When people when people evaluate their life satisfaction, and then there's another question which asks you like, where are you on the ladder of life? Like, are you at the top of the ladder or the bottom? That's definitely you know. Then you're definitely thinking about sort of societal expectations and you know, have you achieved a good status, right? I would say that sense of purpose, um, and you know, there are other you know, I'm sure there are plenty, there are lots of other questions that academics use to kind of tap into this. I would say that those. I think people are not thinking about their purpose, that they're sort of, they're sort of like this status as strongly in those, in, in those contexts. So, you know, you've got things like, so in the, uh, when we did analysis in the UK, you could see that people who work in, um, in the education sector, for example, in the health sector, much higher sense of worthwhile, but not, but actually, I don't even know if they even have like higher life satisfaction, probably even lower life satisfaction, but it's a higher sense of, sense of purpose, right? So that kind of, to me, makes sense. There's a sense that where you people, those people are aware that they are contributing to um, to, to society. Um, other more kind of subjectivist elements of work. So do you feel like you are able to, um, you know, when you have more autonomy, that sort of thing, also more likely to impact on the sense of purpose. Well, I'm curious if you could say something about just the general status of people, you know, around the world. Maybe you can give some specific examples, but but how are people doing uh, based on these kinds of indicators and the work that you all are doing? Uh, yeah, how are people doing? <laughs> are we are we doing well? Um, good question. So um, when you um, when you look at, I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of sort of the latest data that I've seen. So. When you look across sort of developed countries, I think the average on that naught to ten scales of life satisfaction is like in some countries it goes up to just below eight. So the happiest countries in the world are mostly uh, sort of Scandinavian countries, and I think the average there life satisfaction is just just shy of eight. I think like seven point eight or seven point nine. In um, other countries, I think in in Western Europe and the US, you're kind of looking at sort of between seven and seven point five, and then and then you go to the other end. I guess the countries which have the lowest levels of life satisfaction, like in in sub-Saharan Africa, then you're looking at figures like around five or below five, even on the naught to ten scale. So, like, I think globally the average is above five. The, so you know, if you're very, if you're being very blasé about it, you could be okay. Well, we're above average, so that's great. But of course, you know, it's it's there's a little bit of an element of well, what actually is average? Like, you know, do people is five really the average on a naught to ten scale? I think it's a little bit hard to to 
to really make that claim. Um, I think that most people, you know, even if they're personally, if I'm feeling like a bit miserable, I would probably say, oh, I'm about, I'm about a six on the not ten scale. I probably wouldn't go so extreme negatively. So there are, you know, there are obviously sort of like psychological biases in the way people respond to these scales. And um, it makes it a little bit hard to kind of say, yeah, we're doing well or we're not, you know, as a, on a sort of a global, on a global um, level. One thing which I think is, was very interesting was looking at the changes um, to well-being um, during the pandemic. And um, so, um, so the, the last big project I, I did in this area was on the Happy Planet Index, which I can tell you a little bit about later, but um, where we looked at well-being and ecological footprint and life expectancy for um, all the countries across the world up until, well, from 2006 until 2020 for some countries. We weren't able to get data for all countries, but up to 2020 for some countries at least. Yeah, and then you can see, um, unsurprisingly, that the pandemic did have an impact on, on well-being. Well-being did fall globally, but it didn't fall in all countries. And you know, obviously, there were some countries that weren't very um, weren't very badly hit by the pandemic in 2020, at least. So, for example, well-being didn't fall in India, where I think the pandemic hadn't really hit by then. Um, of course, then you know, India had that horrible wave in 2021, but we don't have the data for that yet. But it also didn't fall in some countries, which which um, you know, which were hit quite badly by the pandemic. So I remember hearing a presentation by someone from the Italian statistics agency, um, ESTAT, and they and they have they, they collect they collect official data on well being with you know, using a big sample, so it's kinda of much more robust than some of the more international surveys. And yeah, and they said that you know, actually they found um, an increase in well being during the pandemic and even more of an increase in places where which were harder hit by the pandemic. And that's quite interesting, obviously, because it's sort of, you know, we, obviously the, the, the accepted wisdom and, you know, obviously in terms of, um, in, in terms of so many things, the accepted wisdom is the pandemic was, you know, is the worst thing that's happened to the world this, this century. But it seemed to have some kind of some positive side effects in some societies. And in Italy, for example, there's a lot of talk about how it brought people together, a sort of strong sense of community, um, you know, sort of help people, neighbors helping each other and this sort of stuff. But it wasn't like that in all countries. In the UK, the well-being fell, for example, during the pandemic. So that raises a question about the extent to which individual well-being is really tied to other people. That is to say, how well they are connected, friends, family, social support networks, and so forth. How do you think? How well do you think that is understood and analyzed in these different kinds of metrics and, and indicators for well-being? Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we know that people's relationships is one of the biggest important, the biggest predictors of their well-being. And um, there was a study that was done ages ago, like twenty years ago, which was called "Very Happy People," and it was just like trying to look and see what are the what are the predictors, not of sort of slightly above average well-being, but high, but really high well-being. And it was the strongest predictor. The thing that sort of really stood out was people's social networks. So people who had stronger social networks were particularly happy. And um, yeah, and I think you know it's quite intuitive. We, we you know we we know that other people are very important to us, and um, I would say in terms of how well is that captured in well-being metrics, I would say I think it's captured pretty well because at the end of the day, if you ask people how they feel about their lives, they will, um, you know, they'll 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 say whether they won't tell you they won't necessarily tell you why they're unhappy, but you can be sure that if they're unhappy because because of we of poor social relationships, that'll come out in the data. So you know you don't have to directly ask people about their social, their, their relationships to to know that there's an impact going on there. I want to go back to something you said a bit earlier about the ecological footprint and linking that with well-being. I've seen some really interesting work that suggests that the it's counterintuitive. We always think about the Scandinavian countries as being like the best off and the most environmental, but that's actually not true at all. And what's clear is that there are other countries like Costa Rica and Cuba, which are always the examples given, which have way lower ecological footprints, way less money and wealth and profit and so forth, but they live longer, they have much greater social connections. And it seems like in general, these indices say that they actually feel like their life satisfaction is higher. So can you say anything about that? Uh, and, and in general, yeah, what are those linkages between sort of the ecological outcomes and also the well-being of people in different societies? Yeah, so it sounds like you've been reading articles about the Happy Planet Index because um, that's basically so the Costa Rica has been so we've done the Happy Planet Index four or five times now, and Costa Rica has come out top in all well four out I think yeah, it's been done it five times, it's come top four out of five times. 
but it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I wouldn't say that necessarily Costa Rica is happier than, than the Scandinavian countries. So if you just look at pure pure subjective well-being element of it, Costa Rica scores very high, but not higher than, than, than those Scandinavian countries you mentioned. The, the reason it did well on, this, on the Happy Planet Index is because the Happy Planet Index takes subjective well-being, it takes life expectancy, sorry, multiplies them together, um, and then divides that by ecological footprint. Yeah, so it's a, it's kind of an efficiency measure, sorry, an efficiency measure rather than a measure of happiness. So it's basically which countries are more efficient at achieving high well-being, and yeah, and then Costa Rica comes out much higher than Scandinavian countries because life expectancy, for example, in Costa Rica is probably a little bit lower. I mean, we often make the comparison with the U.S. because um, then it's kind of quite it's quite stark. So in the when you compare Costa Rica with the U.S., Costa Rica's life expectancy and life satisfaction is a tiny bit higher than than the U.S. is, but the ecological footprint is a quarter the size. When you compare Costa Rica with, yeah, the Scandinavian countries, then you'll see that Costa Rica's life satisfaction, life expectancy is a little bit below those countries. But again, the ecological footprint is much lower. So when you think about it in terms of efficiency, it comes out very well. So that's interesting. I mean, I just read an interesting article on Costa Rica which was comparing the the sort of health sector in the the U.S. and Costa Rica, and they spend a fraction of what the U.S. spends on healthcare, and yet they live longer on average. You know, so again, it's these mismatches. So I guess I'm curious about just in general these sort of measurements of well-being. What do they tell us about society? And more importantly, does it give us any insight in how we should do anything public policy-wise to better people's lives and increase? You know, or decrease environmental consequences, for example. Yeah, I mean, to the point to the point on 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 health. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's it's a perfect example of why it's important not to measure um, input. You need to measure output, and you know, in many countries, um, you know, you can spend lots of money on trying to um, cure people from diseases, but it'll be a lot cheaper if countries just prevented those diseases in the first place. So, you know, a preventative approach in terms of, and that's not, not even necessarily something that's the responsibility of the healthcare system. You know, so you can, you can do it like that. So in the UK we had, well, we used to have this public health body, which, um, whose responsibility was to try and improve, you know, to try and to foster preventative approaches. So encourage people to eat fruit and vegetables, encourage people to do physical activity so that they wouldn't, you know, end up with um, heart diseases and diabetes, and also and, and, and well, preventable diabetes and other 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 illnesses. So you know, but it doesn't have to be a governmental body at all. I mean, it's just in a way, it's it's culture, it's society. So you know, we're in a culture and society where people eat healthier because that's just the way people that that's the way it's done. You know, the spending is irrelevant in a way. It's just it's the way the culture works. So um, you know, a lot of the differences in life expectancy which you see in the world are probably more about basically diet and lifestyle rather than um, rather than um, rather than um, expenditure on, on healthcare. What lessons can we learn from these? I mean, it's, it's a big question, you know, sort of what lessons can we learn in terms of these international comparisons? I would say that there are, there are sort of, there's a kind of two levels of, of lesson here. So on the one, on the one level, you can kind of look at the differences between sort of countries that are similar, but, not quite the same yeah so you can look at sort of you can look across europe or you can look within latin america or you know if you can do this data within if you can do this data i mean um, within countries you know you look between compare states you can start to sort of like uh, draw draw some patterns so you know there's there's been studies which have shown that states in the us which have higher economic inequality have lower lower average well-being right so that's a kind of you know, that's the kind of thing that policymakers, for example, are used to looking at that kind of data and kind of drawing drawing conclusions from. When you look, you know, when you look across, and I haven't done so much of that stuff comparing countries, but when I look, when you look across, for example, different parts of the UK, you see, um, for example, quite surprisingly, in a way that sort of air, air pollution is as a quite a strong predictor of subjective well-being. We know it's a strong predictor of health, but it also is a strong predictor of um, subjective well-being, even though perhaps people aren't so explicitly aware of it. So those are things you can sort of draw lessons from. But I think there's a sort of a bigger a bigger message, and this is kind of what, why, why we developed the Happy Planet Index, which is kind of to say, firstly, okay, well, you know, 
are the way we're understanding progress is completely wrong because we we never we don't look at any of these three indicators when we're measure, when we're talking about the success of the country. We look at GDP and how much you know how much throughput economic throughput it um, it, it has. And so this is kind of when you when you produce that planet index, like no one can disagree that the three things we've got in it are important. And and it's sort of like yeah, okay, well you're right. Of course, these things are more important than GDP. So it's that sort of questioning sort of what priorities are. So it's kind of, a, it's, you know, we, we, we talk about the planet index as a compass, right? It just kind of points you in the right direction. It's not really necessarily telling you which steps you need to take, but it gives you the, the direction. And it, and it is also, it's meant to be a little bit of a sort of a, a positive message. So in a way, it never quite is a positive message because, as I say, we've done this many years and we, as I say, there's three indicators in it and we have like, We've set, I mean, they're rather arbitrary thresholds, but we kind of set thresholds. When we first did this in 2006, we had we set thresholds of what we would count as good a good performance on each of the three indicators, right? So what counts as a good life expectancy, what counts as a good level of life satisfaction, and for ecological footprint, we said, okay, basically, what would be sustainable? So we, we used ecological footprint, the, more the global footprint network's definition of a one planet living, and we said, okay, well, if a country achieves that, then, then that's a good performance in there. And you know, we were disappointed in 2006 to see that no country was able to achieve you know, a good performance in all those three indicators. Plenty of countries do well on two indicators, but not all three. And yeah, and we've seen that time and time again. And so you know, now I look at the data from up to 2020, and we've got 15 years of data, and still no country has achieved all good, good performance in all three indicators. Sometimes it's tantalizingly close, but it's never quite there. So it's not a 100% positive message, but at least it kind of, yeah, it's close, and it kind of highlights that you know when we when we think about the lives that we have in rich industrialized countries, and we think this must be the only way that the only good way to live. We think like you know, God, can you imagine living like people in poorer countries? It must be awful. And what the Hakan Index shows is actually no, it's not. It's not. I mean, it might be. It might be. You know, obviously there are countries which um, you know the countries which do worst are sub-Saharan African countries where life is particularly difficult but when you look sort of just a little bit lower down the sort of the, the you know the, the gdp rankings you can see countries where yeah which do a lot better and it shows that okay this is there, it is possible to lead, a, to lead a good life that doesn't cost the earth you know we just need to change how we um, organize our economy and i want to get to that in just a minute but before we do i'm curious if you think there are any examples where countries have used any of these well-being indicators statistics trends and use that specifically to implement or create or implement policy. Do you think this is leading to fundamental policy change? Are there any examples of that? Oh, I thought you would ask that question. <laughs> um, so there are definitely examples at the margins. The UK has, it's, it's often quite hard to see it because at the moment it's still a little bit such a, there haven't been any sort of, there haven't been any cases of someone saying, we have done this and we have done this because of well-being. Um, at least not in terms of like articles that hit the news. Anecdotally, I have heard of. I mean, I would say, I would say it's more about the approaches rather than the statistics. So, um, in the UK, for example, there has been quite a talk around the sort of well-being approach to policy, and um, you know there are various frameworks which people use to think about well-being. And I know that that is used in some departments, or it has been used in some departments to think about policy. And um, and has informed various ideas. So like in the UK, they introduced this sort of national citizen service for young people, I think when they're coming out of, coming out of school, where they can do these kind of programs. And I know that well-being was kind of, uh, was shaped that idea. And then, and then they used well-being in the evaluation of this intervention. And the fact that well-being increased during this intervention, intervention was, you know, was a case for continuing the, the intervention. So those are the kind of, I guess, I mean, this is, that's not, you know, economy shifting policy, right? But it, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing which I know is happening in New Zealand. New Zealand is often hailed as, um, as a leader in the well-being world. And so since I think it was 2019, they did their first well-being budget. And, and I think just they've, I think it's quite recently they published the 2022 well-being budget. And this basically is where their treasury, their sort of the, the um, finance ministry as such have officially are supposed to be thinking about well-being whenever they make any budget decisions. What have we seen in New Zealand? And uh, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't live in New Zealand, so like I'm not a, I'm not an expert. So I'm just sort of, re- sort of reporting back what I've heard from other 
from other people and from people who are interested in well-being in New Zealand is a sense of, yeah, it's kind of been uh, semi-good. It's like gets things going in the right direction. It hasn't led to any sort of like earth-shattering changes in policy, but it's but it's sort of tended to push things in the right direction. So you kind of, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, we know that um, we know that um, inequality is one of the biggest drivers. Well, deprivation, economic deprivation, is one of the biggest drivers of low well-being. So, you know, when you see in the in the budget more um, more attempts to um, alleviate poverty and in particular child poverty, then you can see that there's sort of it's consistent with the well-being literature. It's consistent with the well-being literature. They're talking about well-being. Does that count as well-being shifting policy? Yeah, I mean, obviously things are never so linear, right? So, mm. so that's that's the that's the state of affairs, I guess, at the moment. I think there's another thing which I think is interesting to some people will say, oh, you know, we know everything about well-being; it's great, and and we, you know, there is a huge wealth of literature, and we do know a lot, but it's still tricky for us to really bring it all together. So, economists, you know, have their economic models about sort of what's going to have an impact on GDP and they kind of, they can, they have this model of, okay, well, if we, if we, you know, if we shift taxes, um, you know, from this group to the other, what's going to be the impact on GDP and okay, the models aren't 100% perfect, but they ha- at least, at least they think they are, at least they, at least they give you some sense of, you know, it gives some people a sense of confidence when they make decisions about, um, you know, about, about policies in terms of the impact they're going to have on GDP. We don't have models like that for well-being. So we don't have the sense of, okay, well, you know, if we shift spending away from education towards mental health, for example, we don't know what the, we don't, we, we don't have a model where we can just plug that in and see what that's going to do to the average well-being. And so, and, and, and it's kind that's the kind of thing that at least economists in government and, uh, and economic and analysts see as the benchmark. They kind of see, well, okay, well, this well-being stuff, it's all nice, but if we don't have the tools to really understand how to change it, then we're not going to be able to use it. And yeah, I mean, there's there's some validity in that. I mean, you could argue, well, we just need to do things based on what we think is right rather than economic models. But that's a, you know that's another that's another challenge to face. So I want to ask you in just a minute about what you think we should do. But before we get there, I guess I'm curious from your perspective whether this data and again this sort of oh, this whole area of well being. Does it tell us why people are not doing well? Do we have good a good sense of, of what those pressures are or drivers of why there aren't more people doing well? I mean, I, I do think it's important to say that in in the Western world, still people aren't doing badly, right? So as I said, sort of when I, you asked me sort of earlier on, sort of what's what's the average well being? And in most Western countries, we're talking about an average of above seven out of ten. So, so. It, I mean, and I guess that sort of you know, I came to I came to well-being more as a tool to to a tool to address environmental challenges rather than sort of wanting to focus just on well-being on itself. So for me, I'm more interested in not I'm not interested necessarily in sort of how can we increase well-being. I'm more interested in how can we reduce environmental impact without decreasing well-being. But let me answer your question because I think it's only fair. <laughs> so I think there are like. I mean, there, there, there are two. There are two kind of sets of barriers, right? So I'd say there's the there's the kind of barriers that we know about already that sort of people talk about in policy already, in which are kind of standard fare for for, for people who are in any way left wing or socialist or liberal. Um, so it's you know having a reasonable income. So we know people who have low who have very, who have a low income have low well being. Doesn't mean that having a high income means you have high well being, but you need a certain threshold. That's one. Secondly, um, obviously health and um, and um, uh, yeah, just sort of you know, sort of having and then health in a sense of sort of being healthy in a sort of very sort of outcome oriented way. But when you think about sort of particularly you know, the situation in the US and, uh, and other countries where there isn't um, guaranteed healthcare, it's you know having the sense of security of health, right? So those are two things. And the third thing, which I think is important, and I think sort of has you know has has led to some conversations amongst econ- economists is the importance of having a job and not i mean obviously we know that having a job is important but not just in terms of the economic benefit the sense that a job gives um people a sense of meaning and social relationships as well so you know some people would argue uh, some people would look at the well-being literature and say okay well this shows that you know we need to make sure people have jobs it doesn't matter what kind of job it is it could be a shit job it could be low paid as long as they've got a job that's going to be good for their well-being i think that's a little bit exaggerating but 
but there is some sense that sort of, you know, it, for me, the well-being literature certainly speaks against the idea of having a basic income, like replacing jobs with just, you just, um, you know, just give people money and let the robots do the work. That, that for me is not the way forward. But anyway, so those three things are things that we know are important. Health, income, job, we know they're important. And um, well-being sort of supports that and kind of pushes us in the way towards um, focusing on those three um, those three determinants. I just heard a, an interview with this anthropologist, basically, and his insights were quite, quite, quite enlightening for me personally. Which is, we we know that seventy percent of worldwide workers hate their jobs, and we know that most jobs are not super meaningful. They don't serve a good purpose. Which goes back to your earlier points, where having a sense of purpose is important. We also know that. The anthropology is quite clear on this, that it's, if, if you just give people a basic income, it's not like they just lay around all day. There is sort of just an, by virtue of being a human being, the sort of need to do something. So I guess I'm curious about that, because again, going back to my earlier question, is it a case that we have contrived what we mean by well-being in the context of you know, modern capitalism, where our social status is connected quite tightly to how much money we make. We know that it's a globalized economy where you basically can't have a situation in which people or countries are not connected to the global economy. I guess I'm wondering how much of all of that is embedded in this because you've mentioned several times in passing that GDP is not a good indicator of people's well-being or countries' well-being. So I guess I'm wondering about all of those broad level influences and how those affect even our understanding of well-being from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, I mean, the basic income in question is, is one that I think still, I think I would say the jury is still out. I mean, there were certainly early studies that showed that if you just give people money, they, a lot of people do just tend to, just, just tend to, um, to just, you know, sort of lay about. And, and it's kind of, you know, there's, there is, people do feel they want to do something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's so easy to do. There's sort of, you know, having a job is kind of a forces you to, in a way, get up and and and, and engage with other people. So, but, I, but the jury's still out and, you know, we need to see how that, um, you know, what happens with that. But could, could you go back to the last point of your question? Sorry. Cause... Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering about this this broader sort of focus we have in society on money, profit, GDP, and how much that affects our worldviews such that it influences what we even perceive as well-being from the very beginning. Is there an objective well-being outside of the human sort of experience, which clearly is no, but, but, to, but to what extent does our place in this globalized capitalist world affect fundamentally how we even see ourselves and well-being? And is it the case that that potentially completely transforms what we mean by well-being such that we say certain things about what we need or want, which actually don't reflect our true interests, but are shaped by our society? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I don't know if it's even possible to answer it. I mean, I mean to, to answer it, I think you do have to say, well, there is some sense of objective well-being, right? So... Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, the society, the capitalist society we have grown up in, all of us, um, pretty much. And, you know, for those who grew up in a communist society, it's still a kind of a productionist society, and one which kind of, a product, you know, communism also sort of fetishizes the idea of producing more. So there isn't a huge difference in terms of, in terms of sort of what it means for the idea of produce. So we've all grown up in that. And, you know, it's hard to do... Um, you know, to, to work out well, what would it have been like if, in a different, you know, we, there isn't a counterfactual of what uh, our needs and stuff would be if we hadn't grown up in those societies. I would turn it around and argue, well, okay, but I mean, even if that is true, even if okay, so you could say, okay, well, if we lived in a different society, then our needs um, would be different, and then yeah, and then maybe we would you know, maybe we'd be less materialistic, right? So maybe if we all lived in a different society, we would be, you know, not feel the need to, maybe we'd be very happy living a very sort of simple, primitive life, um, you know, without very much, you know, with one item of clothing or whatever, and, um, you know, sort of uh, very, um, you know, basic living conditions. And maybe that's true, and that would be good for the planet if we did, but but um, but we haven't grown up in, in that society. We've grown up in the society that we have, and, 
And so in a way, we do have to work with, you know, what I call the sort of the psycho- psychological limits to, well, people talk about the ecological limits to growth. And I would say, well, okay, there are also psychological limits to changing that system because that I'm all for that change that system, but it, but we have to recognize where we are at the moment. And so, you know, I think we need to, for example, tackle uh, tackle materialism. I think that's kind of, I think the materialism is, you know, in terms of what has capitalism done in terms of the way we think about our aspirations and what we want to achieve in life, I would say that materialism is the biggest negative outcome. I think you're also kind of implying that sort of this idea of productionism, sort of like productivism is also an, uh, an outcome of capitalism. I, maybe, that, maybe that's right, but let me, let me kind of focus on materialism now. So, so there are ways we can we, there are ways we can work on that, and there's like and and I think that's one of the kind of the key challenges that we need to face. And I say that that's one of the key lessons that we get from well being because, on the one hand, yes, you're right that uh, our well being is shaped by our material circumstances in a way that's probably been influenced by living in a capitalist world, but it's not been shaped as much as you would expect. So, so as I mentioned before about sort of like the relationship between income and well-being, you know, yes, people who have low incomes have low well-being and that may well be partly shaped by our, um, by our capitalist, the aspirations of our capitalist system has informed. But it's, but it's actually quite a low level of income where people's well-being is already sort of stable, right? So, and it's a lot lower than what people think would make them happy. So, um, you know, people people being able to kind of understand from what we know from well-being make the decision okay actually it does make sense for me to work less hours i will have less money but i will be able to spend more time with my family or in my community or doing things which i think are valuable yes it does make sense for me to um to get rid of my car and travel um with active transport or use public transport because because you know it's going to be good for my health it's going to be good for my subjective well-being as well those are kind of things which which well-being literature does inform us and does kind of and they do count work against materialism. So maybe that seems a little bit less radical and revolutionary than what you're suggesting, but I think it is an important first step at least. So just to extend that a little bit, I want to ask you specifically, given your interests, your experience, your education, your expertise in in well-being, what do you think we as society should do to increase well-being specifically? Okay. Can I can I can I change the question to so to, say to, to increase well-being while reducing environmental impact? Yes, of that course. For me, is, is the key. Yeah, <laughs> I would say there are. But for me, success would be like would look like this: we could reduce working hours. So if we reduce working hours, so when we work at the New Economic Foundation, we talked about a twenty-one hour week, so as opposed to whatever thirty-five or forty hours, which is typical in most countries. So that would mean obviously we are we have less money, so we're 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 consuming less. We're also producing less, um, but we have more time for um, interaction with other people, with society, um, with our family, with community. More time to engage in politics. Uh, more time to keep ourselves to do other things which are important to our well-being, to the well-being promoting behaviours. And of course, if we're consuming and producing less, that means a huge reduction in environmental impact. Lastly, the other good win, the other win out of that is um, in terms of um, employment distribution. So. You know, as we worry about uh, there being less and less work to do because of automation, slowly reducing working hours for everyone rather than laying off half the workforce and, and giving them um, giving them basic income, for me, seems like a more sort of equitable, equitable, equitable way of dealing with it. A second thing is ec- um, economic redistribution. I think that's... Um, Obviously, you know, sort of one of the oldest debates in politics, but um, the well-being evidence suggests that if we um, if we have a significantly more fair um, income distribution, that will be it won't have a negative impact on the well-being of those who are of the richest, but it will have a definitely a positive impact for the low for people with lowest incomes. And oh, and and that in terms of environmental impact. I would say it's a bit more mixed what the environmental impact of that would be, but one of the definitely one of the positive side of things is if we have less wealth, then we have less less sort of overconsumption, and we also have less of this aspiration for overconsumption. So, you know, if everyone if the, if the, if we're not looking at the the Elon Musks of the world and you know who are telling us how they're going to fly to that they're going to they're going to go and fly to the moon, and we think oh well, you know wouldn't it be nice if we could fly to to Australia or whatever. 
in a way sort of a spot or even sort of emulating this aspiration, then that'll be good for in terms of environmental impact as well. Third, which is not to do with environmental issues, I guess, but which is which I think is important to to remember is mental health. So um, mental health has always been seen as a sort of less important than physical, than physical health. Government spend much less money on mental health and physical health, and yet we know that mental health has a huge impact on people's well-being, and is becoming so it seems a bigger a, a bigger problem. So um, you know, sort of re- redirecting investment into mental health, I think, is an important part of that. But it's uh, I wouldn't want to go on about that all the time because I do think that sort of investing in mental in, in sort of cures for mental health is probably a bit too downstream. I feel like we need to do more to prevent people developing um, mental health problems in the first place. I would say that another key factor is, um, yeah, our communities. How do we live together as communities? And, you know, I mentioned already this thing about sort of the number of people who live alone and and um, sort of atomization of society. And that's partly to do with the amount of time we have, like, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would like, oh, I'd love to, um, you know, volunteer or contribute to my local groups, but I don't have the time to do it. So I think, you know, having more time will be a key factor that would help us on that road. But then, but then we also need to have the mechanisms to allow people to, 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 to do things together. And so that means, for example, let's not abandon urban spaces. Like the urban spaces are an important place where people come together, um, and can do stuff together. Let's not sort of dream up a world where we all live in, um, it, you know, sort of an isolated places around the world where we don't have much connection with, with with each other. Let's not dream up a world where we where we are all doing um, home, um, sort of like working from home with Zoom, where we don't have any sort of actual face to face contact with people. So those, I think, are some of the things that I would advocate for. So just to end, I want to ask a, a couple of questions that are a little bit more personal. Um, I'd love to hear, uh, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration or hope? Hmm. Um, I mean, staying on the theme of, uh, of, of community groups, I'm always impressed by um, you know the, the amount that people do achieve. So I live in a small town in East Germany, which has, it's a kind of post-industrial, post-communist house, which had kind of a, a bit of a dark history in the past. It was kind of, there was a time just after the unif- reunification of Germany when it was the place with the highest level of unemployment. There were lots of factories that were closed down, um, you know, lots of problems with the far right in the past, as uh, neo-Nazis. And then, um, but it's done an amazing job in sort of transforming itself Partly, um, partly they, were, they set up a university here for, for um, sustainable development and it attracted sort of different people and it kind of brought a new energy to the city and sort of, sort of improved the public transport network uh, connection to Berlin so that there's lots of people who live here but sort of are connect, quite connected with Berlin. Either they work in Berlin or they just have more of that connection with the city. And the place is, you know, I think from what I, from what I hear, I've only been here for six years, but I've already, you know, I can see a change in that time. Um, and and it's just so much. There's so many little things going on here, which I always find quite, which I find quite amazing. So, just like lots of kind of organising, giving things, giving things away for free. So, there's this thing called Fair Tyler, where where food is collected from different places, and then it's just like left in the university, and and people can pick. Well, some some of it's left for people to pick up for students. Some of it's taken to um, places um, for people who, who you know who are perhaps in more need than students for for low, the free food and it's all you know obviously done um voluntarily and you know i mean this this goes i mean that's just one example you know you see this kind of stuff all around the world but it, it is amazing how much people are willing to to collaborate and do things to help others and i do think that um yeah it gives you hope <laughs> is there an example of something you've read or heard lately that really challenged your thinking or made you think in new ways about your own work or the state of society I mean, this is perhaps not not mega recent, but for me, I would say that there was. I had a shift in thinking around five years ago, or six years ago. Is that does that count as recent? <laughs> I mean, that definitely counts. Yes. Back. Okay. Um, in the sense of yeah, a sense of so 
I came from a perspective of sort of you could try and achieve change in a sort of slightly more subtle way. So I felt that, okay, well, you know, well-being is quite useful because well-being is quite useful because it looks like a very sort of uh, neutral term. It's something that people on the left and on the right can 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 um, can aspire to, can can sign up to. But then when you like actually sort of do the analysis and you do the statistics and you do the and you do the research, you can see that a lot of the things that will improve well-being are the kinds of things that um, I say are more on the left. As you know, I've already mentioned redistribution and um, you know tackling materialism, those kind of things. And I guess I kind of yeah, I hope that you could somehow use this, you kind of get people to care about well-being, get people to sort of to take that as the as as the as, as the golden metric, and then people would almost like fall into, um, you know, sort of a, oh, well, in that case, then let's let's um, let's reduce redistribution. Yeah, so I kind of imagine this to be a bit more of a sort of an, uh, scientific uh, kind of approach, and I think that sort of my experience over the years has kind of made it clear to me that that's that, and and then actually doing other work in terms of so now I'm doing a PhD in communication science and. You know, sort of coming, recognizing that that doesn't work, <laughs> that people's, you know, that people's preset, well, values, but also their sort of their, their their political tribes, in a way shapes everything they see. And so, especially when people are very political, so so as soon as people people don't change their political positions, they change what they think is important to support those political positions. And maybe that's a bit of a cynical. I don't want to end on that cynical note, but that's definitely something which I've learned um, and has sort of changed the way I've thought about things in recent years. And lastly, you know, this is a time when many people feel somewhat overwhelmed and dispirited. I'm wondering if there's anything in your day-to-day life that you do that brings you joy and, and helps give a different perspective on the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess this is all going to be quite cheesy and probably quite sort of standard, but um, sort of interacting with, with with the future generation, with with kids, and I've got a seven-year-old daughter, and obviously sort of you know interacting with her and her friends, I was quite um, um, quite impressed by the fact that my daughter last week said, "I've written a song, Daddy," and um, and she kind of got her little notebook out and started singing the song to me, and it was very much it was all about the environment and improving the environment. I was like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> so that sort of, um, yeah, so spending time with, um, with, um, with the younger generations, I think is, um, is very, um, uplifting. And then, so more of a sort of party line on sort of what, what, what do I do, but it's something that everyone can do. So when we were at the new economics foundation, we came, we were asked to develop a sort of, a and a communication tool for how people can improve their own their own well being, and um, my colleagues reviewed all the sort of huge stashes of literature on sort of what things are important to well being, and but with a focus on things that people can do in their own lives, right? So rather than the policy stuff, the more kind of individual level stuff, and they came up with the five ways to well being, which are sort of five things that you can incorporate into your daily life that are, um, to improve your well being, and um, they are be active, so physical activity connect with other people obviously keep learning so um you know sort of not giving up on learning and the fact that i'm learning the fifth language now in my 40s is probably (laughs) part of doing that keep learning um give which is obviously about volunteering and take notice which is just about appreciating the things around you yeah and i try and do those things when i can you know when i'm um conscious enough or aware enough or sort of mindful enough to sort of think okay you know especially when you're feeling a bit down, it's important to kind of um, recognize those things and make sure you incorporate them into your diet, daily life. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I keep myself going. Well, Samas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been a pleasure. When I first started thinking about this podcast and the kinds of topics I wanted to cover, well-being was at the top of the list. And I am so glad and grateful for Samant to spend time with me today to talk about that. His insights are really interesting, and he really is an expert. We could have talked a much longer time about all of these issues. He has tremendous expertise that, again, I think are just so important for thinking about how our society is organized and how it could be organized better so that people do better. 
As always, I want to thank the executive producers of Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless, and Chris Flores. And as always, thanks so much to Anodyne Diversion for the music. And thanks to you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you can tune in again for another interview on Crossing the Chasm. Thank you.